Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. As we understand the consumption basket has changed, as we understand that means that manufacturing processes and supply chains are going to have to change. Until we get there, the problem is going to be that persistently high inflation means much higher interest rates. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest and founder and CEO of Bianco Research, Mr. Jim Bianco himself. Jim, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, guys, for folks uh, who are following along video and those who are not, Jim is wearing a very special little button uh, on his shirt today. Jim, can you explain what that, what that is you got on your shirt there? It's a win button. It stands for whip inflation now. <laughs> when we had a big inflation problem in the mid-1970s, President Gerald Ford decided that the problem was an attitude problem, kind of like exp- inflation expectations. So the government printed up all these win buttons and they said, man, if we just all get together and we fight like Americans, we're going to get rid of inflation. And it promptly went to 12%. (laughs) And I might also add that the uh, Council of Economic Advisors under Gerald Ford at the time was Alan Greenspan. Although he was against it, just to be fair to Mr. Greenspan. But it sounds a lot like what we're doing today. Yeah, there's the whole greedflation narrative, right? It's the corporations uh, and the greedy profit-seeking executives, right? They're to blame for everything that we're seeing right now. Uh, definitely or funny inflation echoes. expectations. It's just a, it, inflation is a mindset, right? If you, It has nothing to do with actual supply meeting demand and shifting curves. It's just if you believe there's inflation, then there's inflation. If you magically decide that there isn't inflation, well, then I guess there isn't inflation. Exactly. That's exactly what the win button was 50 years ago. And we seem to be repeating the same mistake today. Yeah. Um, so yeah, inflation is actually exactly where I want to start with you, Jim, because you've been pretty right uh, just in terms of predicting uh, both the stickiness uh, of CPI, which has persisted far longer than most experts. Uh, and you've also been pretty dead on in terms of uh, predicting the response from the Fed, which has been much, much more hawkish than I think uh, the consensus was on Wall Street even a very short time ago. So what I've got here is the the most recent Nowcast, right, which I saw you share through your Twitter account. And basically what we're looking at here uh, is a prediction for headline CPI. Uh, this is showing the expectations for both June and July. Uh, so we've got a June coming in at 8.67, so just about 8.7% for June. And then they see it moderately coming down um, to 8.4% in, in July. Still, this this range of CPI, headline CPI around this uh, kind of this eight handle range has persisted and been much stickier uh, than most of the experts thought. So what's your what's your kind of, I guess, short term explanation for why inflation has been so persistent and difficult for the Fed? So, first of all, what we're looking at comes from the Cleveland Federal Reserve, and it's kind of like the more popular GDP now forecast that the Atlanta Fed does, but for inflation, Mm. they they updated every day mainly gas prices and food prices and some other high-frequency prices that come in. So as you can see at the top, they've got 0.97 for June. So around that, that's another 1%. And we did have 1% in May. By the way, if that is right, and if anything, this forecast has actually been a little bit low in recent months. But if we come in near 1%, that means that for the first six months of this year, we have already had 5% inflation. I've heard people say, well, what does the Fed do when we get back to 5% inflation? Well, we're already there. We'd have to print zero for the next six months to end the year at 5%. Uh, They've also got uh, 0.3 for uh, for July, but it's only the first week of July. Lots of things can change. Price of crude oil could go down a lot, bring gasoline down a lot, or it could rebound. Um, And so we'll see where that goes. But let me just add one other thing about this. If you look at their year-over-year numbers, a year ago, the July number was 0.4, or 0.5, excuse me. The August number was 0.3, and the September number was 0.4. So the year-over-year comparators are going to go down quite a bit. Now, why is that important? Because you could credibly make a case, which I did in this Twitter thread, that we could see two things happen at once. There's the numbers. You see the red numbers. That's what we're going to be dropping off in the next year. For those in the video, it's a chart of monthly CPI, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.4, uh, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4 over June, um, July, August, September. Uh, you can make a credible case that we could roll into the fall and still have an eight handle on inflation. 
and maybe even higher if we get crude oil prices going back up again. I know they're, they're not the day we're recording. But even though some will say, well, see, inflation peaked, the Fed will say, yeah, that's fine. 75, 75, 75, 75. They can't stop. They cannot back off with a eight handle on inflation. And it might be several more months before we see it come down. The Fed's credibility is on the line. They blew it in a big way last year with transitory. Mm -hmm. They should have started this a year and a half ago. They should have been on this when we went from 1.5% to 2.5% on our way to 3 But they didn't. They waited till we were at 7.5% before they responded to it. And so now, you know, is the Fed going to make a mistake? I hear people say that all the time. The answer is yes. It was last year. Yeah. This year is the consequence of that mistake. So, Jim, uh, you know, when I'm kind of looking at this chart here, I, I, I kind of think about inflation in right the short term, right, which is trying to forecast out inflation, let's say, over the next quarter or two. And then there are kind of more mid to long term effects like the regime that we're in. Uh, when I'm looking at this chart here, when you kind of see this dip uh, in last year's July, August and September prints, that means to me, right, there, there's this idea of base effects, right, which when we look at the headline CPI number, it's a year over year measure. So if it dipped last year or the, the increase, right, for July, August and September was comparatively lower, then there's almost like a boosting based effect, right, for the next couple months. Um, and that's and that's kind of more discussion around like, you know, you hear these different categories like goods versus services, right, energy, used cars, all of that kind of stuff. But then in the in the mid to longer term, right, we kind of talk about these, um, you know, these longer term drivers for what, what could be changing the regime, the inflation regime that we're in. And one of the ones that I've heard you talk about, and I feel particularly strongly about too, is this reshaping of the global supply chain, right? Because, you know, previously, everything was kind of optimized for efficient, efficiency and the reduction in price. And the main way that we did that was by borrowing from the labor pools of developing countries, right? China kind of being the primary one, right? The world's factory, but others like, you know, um, you know, Bangladesh and uh, Vietnam and, and, and what have you. It seems like in the current geopolitical environment, that's going to be less viable, right? Or even if it's less, if it's not 100% less viable, the people who are in charge of making those sorts of decisions are going to start to weigh the risk of global supply chains either being shut down or, or what have you. So I guess, could you talk a little bit about kind of the mid to longer outlook, mid to longer term outlook for inflation. Do you see it being, you know, kind of steadily higher? And if so, what are the factors that you're kind of looking at? Yeah, I do. I think that we had a regime shift in inflation. And let me back up. If you look throughout history, every time there's been a pandemic coming out of that pandemic, society changes. You know, it changes different ways, different types. And I think that coming out of this pandemic, society has changed and that we're now in an era of persistent inflation. Maybe not 8% inflation um, or 8.5% inflation, but certainly not two anymore. And we're going to have to get in, in, in we're have to, have to get our head around. The deflation story, I think, is over. Uh, that was a story for the last 20 years. And now we're in an inflationary period. Now, two things are driving that. The first one you said is this, the global supply chain, reshoring of the global supply chain is, is the phrase that it's being used. And by the way, I should add, every inflationary boom that we've seen in the last 100 years has an element of a supply kink in it. Um, famously, Arthur Burns kept dismissing the 70s inflation as being a supply chain problem with, with energy, which is why they famously created X food and energy to try and remove that because they were arguing it was the Arab oil embargo. It wasn't anything else that we don't need to um, raise rates because of a supply chain problem. We're making exactly the same arguments uh, today. Oh but gosh. now that I've dig digressed on that, reshoring, it is no longer a world that you need to go, where in the world can I make this? I'm holding up my stylus. The cheapest ever anywhere. Is it Bangladesh? Is it China? Is it Vietnam? Or is it Columbus, Ohio? Uh, and now what we're starting to learn is certain parts of that, if not major parts of that, better be made in a place where I don't have to worry about tariffs or changes of, of politics or any kind of other disruptions along the way. So that's where the reshoring story is coming from. Famously, Intel is looking at building fab plants in Columbus, Ohio and in Arizona. They're starting to realize they cannot rely on Taiwan forever to get all of their chips. 
They might need to get their chips from places where they don't have to worry at night if a government is going to change the rules on them um, right away. That, I think, is the first thing that's happening. The second thing that I think is happening coming out of this out of the pandemic, which drives the supply chain a little bit, too, is there's been a change in our consumption patterns right now. Um, work from home is a big deal for the developed world. It is here. It is real. It is never going away. Now, a couple of statistics for you. Um, there was a study done, and this is about Manhattan. There was a study done that only 8% of Manhattan offices are full-time, five days a week, eight hours a day. Everybody else is some form of hybrid work, two days on, three days off, or vice versa, or fully remote. And this morning, the day we're talking, right after the 4th of July, Bloomberg had a story out that they looked at Predamange's numbers in Midtown Manhattan and in Lower Manhattan. Their sandwich sales are down 50% from pre-pandemic levels, and they're surmising that's because 50% of Wall Street is now working at home. It's not going back. If we have a recession, I think that the number of people that are going to work from home is going to increase. People attach a monetary value to hybrid work or work from home. So instead of giving you a raise, and I know there's no raise because we're in a recession, I'll give you another day at home. And so I think if anything, the re- I've heard people say, well, when the recession comes, they'll be begging for jobs to go back to the office. It'll be the opposite. They'll be going four days at home during the recession because I don't have to pay you more. I'll just give you more days at home. And so because of that, our consumption basket has changed. We consume more stuff. Nice technical term for you. <laughs> and less services. And you've heard economists say for since the pandemic, oh, we're going to start consuming more services and less stuff. And it never really materializes. Mm. Now, we're not consuming no services. We're still buying airline tickets. We're still renting cars um, and the like. We're still, you know, taking our, our clothes to the dry cleaners. Less so because normally that's business attire that goes to the dry cleaners. Uh, but yet we are consuming more things or stuff because as we're home more, we cook for ourselves more. We do things for ourselves more. We want more things. When we're in the office, we need to require services to do those things for us. That's also leading to a chronic shortage on the supply chain because things come from the supply chain and we are demanding more things and in different levels. One last um, antidote for you. We all know about the supply chain or the, the inventory problems that they're having at Target and Walmart. Target and Walmart have noted that they've got bloated inventories. But if you dig down and read what they've said, they've essentially said when the economy was reopening after Omicron, we just basically said, what did we got to restock the shelves? Restock them with what? What did we restock the shelves with in 2019? Buy all that stuff, put it on the shelves. People ran into the stores. They don't buy things in the same quantities and proportions that they did in 2019. So they had both shortages of things that they wanted and surpluses of things that they didn't want. And they've said they've got to sit down and they've got to measure this. What is it that people buy in 2022? It is different. 2019 is history. We're not going back there. There is no return. There is no reopening. As I like to say, we've reopened. This is your new economy. Enjoy it. There is no waiting for something else to come down the line. And this really feeds into a change in the supply chain, a change in consumption patterns. And it is going to take an enormous amount of money and effort to restructure the economy for this post-pandemic world. Years, probably. Trillions, maybe, in money. And until we get there, persistent inflation, chronic shortages, surpluses, frictions as we reshore are going to be the order of the day Gone are the days of the great moderation of under 2% inflation, very low, low, stable or stable real growth, one uh, recession every 10 years and the like. We are now in a new era. And the problem is most people don't want to argue, okay, we're in a new era. Let's try and figure out what it is. They want to argue whether or not it is a new era. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going back to 2019. We're going right back. Stephen Ross, he owner of the Miami Dolphins and made his billions owning real estate in uh, New York City. Um, And he's choking on all this real estate in New York City. 
He's saying, oh, no, people are going to go back to the office just like they did before. Yeah, good luck with that, Steve, mm. uh, to see if, if you're going to get people back on the N train and the L train to go into Manhattan every day, eight hours a day. I'm with you, Jim. I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you on, on both counts, right? I think both the, resho- both the reshoring and the reorganization of the supply chain and this kind of shift in consumption, right, by the U.S. consumer and, and other developed economies as well. It's going to be a tremendous amount of friction, and I, I'm inclined to agree. I don't know if it's you know, eight-handle inflation, but it's probably definitely higher than, than 2%. Mike, I've got two questions for you uh, to follow up on that, uh, which is one, who wins in this environment, right, from an asset class perspective, and then where are rates, right? So what, what I'm showing here is um, this is the H1. I think you posted this chart as well, actually. Uh, the first half of the year total returns of the U.S. Treasury Index, or proxy. And this is cool. I think this comes from Deutsche Bank. It's going all the way back to 1787. This is the worst first half of the year for bonds since 1787, basically the founding of the country, which is pretty wild statistic. Um, and, you know, the, what's, what's interesting to watch on the Fed Fund's futures curve, right, is that actually the market is now pricing in, despite these, this, um, you know, this fear of elevated inflation, that, that the Fed is actually going to begin to cut um, in 2023 uh, as well. So my interpretation of that, and you tell me where I'm wrong, is that despite the market being afraid of persistent inflation, I think the market still doesn't believe that the Fed can hike rates uh, or put rates, let's say, above the rate of inflation or to a point where they're just consistently destroying demand in the economy. Walk me through, like, how do you kind of pair all that up here? Where do you see rates, like, if, if inflation continues to stay as persistent as it is? Right. Well, on your first part, you know, who wins? Let me, let me just add an addendum to my yeah. previous comments. Um, there's always going to be a need for people that work together to congregate together in a place which we call the office. But why or how or when we congregate needs to be hashed out. I don't have the answers. But I just know that having a fight, whether or not we're going back to 2019 or not, is not the answer. Agreed. But, you know, so we need to get together for some reason to meet with vendors, to meet with uh, clients, to meet with coworkers, And we have to figure that out. So a big loser in this, I fear, is going to be commercial real estate. Commercial real estate is going to have to have a rethink. Why do I get on that train and go into Midtown Manhattan? What purpose does it serve? How often do I do it? Why do I do it? One of the problems companies are having right now, just to finish off this thought, is that they're not getting rid of real estate just yet because the two or three days a week they want everybody in the office, they want everybody in the office. So you could conjugate with whoever you want. So they need all the space, but then it goes unused five days a week. So eventually we're gonna have to figure this out and office real estate is gonna be a problem. I think a winner is going to be Jim, more if along I could the lines. Just, yes. just say one real quick thing on that. I'm, gl- I'm glad you said, I didn't want to derail us too much, but I, I would just say the devil's advocate to um, what we're saying about you know the remote work is I, re- I agree with you. I think there is value to putting people together in an office, right? I think five days a week is definitely, there's just no way we're going back to that. But the, the one counter argument that I would say, right, is there's this accepted fact that, oh, people are just as productive and happy working from home as they are in the office. You know, the two years that we're using to essentially establish that as a fact was during a raging liquidity-induced bull market, right? And I think a lot of companies now are going to find out how productive and how much of a team and a culture have we really built, you know, in this remote first environment, or was the market just sending us signals which weren't necessarily valid? You know, so I... I I agree. Yeah. I agree. Just real quick on that. Just so everybody's got on the same page, and then we'll move on to the yep. winning, the winners in the bond market. Mm-hmm. Um, about half of the bit jobs in America can be done remotely. Most of those jobs, uh, some for, for form of remote. Most, virtually all those jobs are service sector jobs. Your job, my job, service sector jobs. You know, there are the other half of the jobs need to be. You need to be on site to do it. A policeman can't do his job remotely. A waitress, a surgeon can't do their job remotely. A construction worker can't do their job via Zoom. So we're only talking about half the jobs. And roughly of those half jo- those, those service sector jobs, about 80% of them, 75% of them are some version of uh, hybrid or fully uh, remote right now. Um, a service sector job can be broken into two things. Things I have to do and people I have to interact with. We hire people in service sector jobs for the things you have to do. If you're a young person, say under the age of 30, and you work in financial services, and you go for a job in financial services, they're going to make you take an Excel test. 
They're going to make you take some kind of other PowerPoint test or some kind of proficiency test in order to get the job because your job is you got to do things for me. Well, what we've learned in the last two years is the doing things I can do at home in my pajamas far more efficiently than in an office. In an office, I'm constantly distracted. But I also need to get together with people and interact with them. That's not as efficient at home as being together in an office. Right. But you hired me to do things. You pay me on my output of doing things. So that's why remote work is getting the bigger push among the lower ranks in an office, the higher ranks, you know, the senior executives and stuff like that. They're more into getting everybody together because their job is about interpersonal communications and about leading companies and about setting visions <laughs> and agendas. Yep. And they need everybody together. So this that's is good. so I agree. We need people in the office because that's more efficient. But you just hired a 24 year old. and You gave them an Excel test to make sure they knew how to do spreadsheets. Yep. And they're gonna tell you, sitting at home in my pajamas, I'm gonna get this spreadsheet done faster and more thorough than I will if I come in the office and you constantly bother me every five minutes. So that's really what we have to start asking the question is, what is it that we want out of our workforce? We want proficiency, so remote work seems to be a better place to go with it. Um, so let me pivot. The winners of this is gonna be, as we start to understand that remote work is gonna be the place to go. As we understand the consumption basket has changed, as we understand that means that manufacturing processes and supply chains are going to have to change. And that isn't just, hey, Louis, you know, buy some more of this and a little less of that. It means restructuring, rebuilding, rechanging supply chains. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of capital investment that is going to have to take place over the next couple of years. That's why I think that as you look at cyclical types of investments, industrials, uh, consumer cyclicals, ma manufacturing, those are going to kind of come back into the vogue because we're going to need more of that as we start to understand what the new economy is going to be. Um, yeah, we're still going to need you know software development and some of that other stuff as well, too. But we've built that out so much right now that that with this change in the economy, we're going to need more things to try and get everybody to go together. Until we get there, the problem is going to be that persistently high inflation means much higher interest rates. Now, a mathematical thing about that chart, that it's the worst period since 1787, and I'm going to use a couple of technical terms here, duration and convexity, that as interest rates go down, you know, um, interest rates become more sensitive or prices of bonds become more sensitive to movements of interest rates. In other words, bond prices, when interest rates go from 1% to 2%, that's a double in interest rates. Bond prices will fall more from 1% to 2 than they would from 7 to 14. That's a double two. The proportions that they fall are not the same. It changes with the level of interest rate. That's what's called convexity. So when you're at extremely low or record low interest rates and you come off of those record low interest rates, you're going to get gigantic price movements in bonds for little movements in yields. And that's why you get these worst total return periods since we've invented statistics and all of this worry about problems and stress in the bond market because we weren't ready or we weren't expecting this type of movement that we saw in the bond market. Uh, I, my favorite anecdote on this is uh, I was talking to a, a very well-known, uh, not hedge fund manager, excuse me, fixed income manager. Um, I won't say his name because he didn't give me permission to use his name, but I was asking him at the beginning of the year, you know, what would happen if the global aggregate index lost 10 or 15% of its value? And he correctly said, it doesn't do that. Why would you think that that would happen? Its worst year ever was down 3% in 1999. And now you're talking about losing 10 to 15%. Well, that's exactly what happened. And writing him large, I think a lot of Wall Street desks, a lot of hedge funds, a lot of fixed income managers came into this year going, could I lose an eighth or a seventh of the value of my bond portfolio? No, that's what stocks do. I don't lose that kind of value in my portfolio in six months. Well, that's exactly what's happened. And that's why I think it's put the bond market under enormous stress. They weren't expecting that. And now they have to deal with it. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. 
I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. Right. So is that part of the reason why, um, you know, because when you talk about famous central bankers in the past who have tamed inflation, everyone likes to talk about Volcker, right? And whatever he brought rates to, which was north of 18%, I think at one point. Um, now, 21 and a half on the funds rate was the peak. 21 and a half. Um, so yeah. now what's, what's been pretty interesting to watch is despite inflation being persistently stickier than most expert than the consensus was, um, you know, we're kind of continuing to see the Fed funds futures curve tell us that, it, you know, in contrast to all the tough talk that we're getting from Powell and all the hawkishness and his willing to crash the economy, right, we're getting consistently lower the, what the what the bond market is telling us is that actually they expect uh, cuts to happen uh, as soon as 2023, right? So you kind of see based on this chart, uh, one, you see what the Fed Fund Futures Curve was telling us two weeks ago, and then you see what it's telling us today. For folks who are following along on video, you're seeing the purple line and the blue line. And what you can see is that that forecast is actually moderating, and the market is predicting fewer uh, rate hikes, and you're seeing um, it you know, you know, getting more moderate. Uh, you know, by April of 2024, uh, they see the Fed fund futures at you know, 2.7% or whatever it is from this chart. So I guess you know, the, the last question that I'll, I'll leave you with here, Jim, before we go on to commodities and energy, is where, what do you see rates doing in this environment? Assuming, I guess, I mean, is the right way to interpret this that uh, the market thinks that inflation is going to be less persistent and sticky than the, than the narrative currently is, or that the Fed is powerless uh, to raise rates even in the face of rampant inflation? Well, I think that a lot of people think it's the latter. The Fed will never go there. The Fed will never go to 4% because that that would crash the economy. And to some extent, the reason that you're seeing the forward curves moderate at around three and a half or four percent and then start down in 2023 is they either think a the Fed just won't go there or b if we ever got to the high threes in the funds rate you know we're going to break so many things in the economy that it will be tumbling down on itself that the Fed will panic and have to start cutting rates aggressively to try and support the economy I don't think it's that they're going to break the economy. I just think that they they think the Fed is going is not going to go there in the first place. And the reason is, I've been an advocate of this whole idea that when Powell said it's time that we retire the word transitory late last year, we just stopped saying the word, you know, like Voldemort. But you just but we still believe it. We still believe ultimately that inflation is going to peak. Yeah, it's going to peak. It's not going to stay at eight and a half forever. And that it's going to rapidly decelerate to two. I don't think it's going to rapidly decelerate to two. I think it's going to rapidly decelerate to four or five. And then we're going to be stuck with, now what do we do with bonds and with multiple valuations in the stock market if we're at a four or 5% world instead of a one to 2% world? And so there's still this belief that no, inflation is not going to be there. It's going to peak. Base effect. You mentioned base effect earlier. You know, the word base, the, the, the popularity of base effects came in in April and May of 2021, almost 18 months ago now, because we had big declines in um, CPI in March and April of 20, the lockdowns. Um, and then when we rolled that off, there was supposed to be this pop in inflation because of base effects. And then it was supposed to moderate for the next two years. Well, there was a pop in inflation and it went straight up for another 18 months is what happened with it. No, all time, the higher, not all time high, the high for this cycle was the last statistic we got was May at 8.6%. So we're not showing any signs 
of, of moderating on inflation. But a lot of people, after 40 years of worrying about deflation, after 40 years of worrying about um, uh, or wondering about whether or not we were going to see the economy go down, 13 years of money printing, supporting the markets, they're having a hard time believing that now that we're in an inflation environment, your enemy is now used to be your savior, the Federal Reserve. The yeah. Federal Reserve is out to make you poor because that's the only way they're going to break inflation is they're going to make you stop buying things so that you take off the, the heat. Now, why would the Fed do that? Two things. A hundred percent of the population is impacted by inflation. A hundred percent. Elon Musk suffers from inflation. SpaceX and Tesla are suffering from inflation. People on assistance suffer from inflation and everywhere in between. 40% of the public has less than $1,000 of savings and they rent. Those people just wind up buying less every month. They're the ones that polling is showing are spitting mad about what's happening in the economy. The, the other part of the, the rest of us that own assets, own homes, we saw them go up in value last year. We saw our homes go up in value. It's been a, a cushion to higher prices for us. Well, the Fed, you know, people then say, well, you can't have a bear market or have falling home prices. The Fed, I think, is focused on the 40%. We got to stop prices going up. Just, it's got to stop. And if, if I have to make everybody else in the other 60% miserable to do it, that's what I'll do. That, to me, is the message that we've heard from the Fed over and over again. And when you tell that to some people, no, 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 you wait. You wait till it gets ugly. Jay will cave and he'll start printing money again and he'll start cutting rates like crazy because he can't let the economy go down. That was correct until the pandemic, because until the pandemic, we never had more than 2% inflation. So every wobble in the economy met with the money printer. But now that we've got inflation, all of a sudden the money printer becomes the problem, not the solution. To the to the decline, you know, to the decline in markets. So I don't think a lot of people have got their head around that, and that's why this chart is only showing four percent. Now, your other thing you asked about, you know, about cutting rates in a year, mm. that's from the forward markets. You could slice and dice the bond market to say what is, you know, use a two-year rate and a one-year rate, and you could say what will be the one-year rate in one year, the difference between the one-year rate and the two-year rate. Um, you could use an 18-month rate and a two-year rate. What will be the six-month rate in 18 months? And you could do that all the way up and down the, the yield curve. And that's what people are doing to, that shows, and the futures market does that too, that, the, that they're going to be cutting rates like crazy in 2023. That's what the market thinks. That's what the market's priced in. What's the historical track record of something like that? Not very good. <laughs> it doesn't mean because it's being priced in now that that's what's going to happen. A year ago, what was the forward curve telling us a year ago? There would be no rate hikes till 2023. How's that worked out so far? <laughs> a month ago, one month ago, early June, the forward rate curve was telling you the Fed would hike 50 in June, uh, 25 in July, and pause in September. How's that looking right now, one month later? So it's important, the forward curve. It tells you what the market thinks. doesn't mean it's going to be right. Mm. See, that's... I appreciate that perspective because that's very helpful for me looking at this chart, right? Uh, it, that, that, that these things don't always come to be. I, I would also say, just listening to you talk, um, I, I want to make sure we've got a lot of stuff to, to cover here and I want to make sure we move through. But for those of you who are interested in kind of the psychology around big regime shifts in markets, I would listen to, um, there was a great episode of the Macro Trading Floor uh, that is typically hosted by Alfonso Pecatiello and Andrea Stena Larson. My colleague Jack subbed in this week. They talked... Um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blank on his name. So embarrassing. But listen to the one that came out this Sunday. There was a really good um, just kind of anecdote about how it's very difficult to kind of change your mind. And uh, there was an episode that um, Grant Williams did uh, with another Jim, uh, Jim Grant, uh, back in July of 2020. Uh, and he kind of talked about, you know, he was, a, he was around and active when there was this big shift right at the end of the, the inflationary period of the 80s, right, where people called bonds uh, certificates of confiscation, right? And people were so used to losing money on bonds for such a long period of time that that was kind of peak pessimism. And then there was, you know, this raging bull market that lasted 40 years. So um, just, you know, when but by, by, by the way, if you want to know what the peak pessimism was like, uh, I'll give you a personal anecdote. The yeah. peak pessimism was like in the in the in the early 80s 
it's what crypto is almost today uh, at this point. I can't tell you the number of people that DM me or quietly talk to me about my avatar on 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 Twitter is blue laser eyes. Mm. I got to get rid of the laser eyes because I'm wrecking my career. <laughs> you know, because crypto is so toxic that those that forget everything else I've done in my career, they're going to look at those blue laser eyes on my avatar and that's it. I'm done. That's how toxic the bond market was in the late 80s. And for people that want to know when the stock market's going to hit capitulation low, look at where the crypto market is right now. That's capitulation low. You're risking your career to say anything nice about it. Well, when you get to that point in the stock market, then it's time to buy it. Yeah. All right. I'm really glad you said that. Um, by the way, it's Russell Clark. Russell, I'm so sorry. He's been on the show. Uh, well, I just had a brain blank there, but listen to Macro Trading Floyd came out this Sunday. But yeah, Jim, I, I completely agree with you. Maybe we can skip ahead. I wanted to, to talk to you about crypto um, at the end, but maybe I could get your get to start to get your opinion now. Um, obviously, there's been an enormous amount of tumult right in the space, uh, right? Like my kind of read on the situation is just it's a good old uh, gold. Jesus, good old fashioned uh, credit contagion, right? Um, wherein there were kind of two problems, right? There was a bunch of um, hidden leverage in the space and people fundamentally misunderstood how that leverage was correlated, right? And this time around, it was kind of a tale as old as time. It was, um, you know, uh, everyone kind of woke up, all the, all the lenders woke up and realized that they had the same large customer, which was, you know, back in the back in the 90s, that was long-term capital management in the banks. This time it was three euros capital. Uh, and a lot of people actually found themselves on the wrong end of a duration trade, right, which was centered around uh, GBTC. But uh, basically what's happening right now is you're starting to see runs on these sorts of shadow banks, right? So, uh, you know, all this is pretty public information now, but SBF and FTX extended a bailout to uh, BlockFi, right? There was a similar kind of line of credit situation extended to Voyager. Uh, Celsius kind of took the other route. They actually closed their doors, right? And it looks like they're uh, in the process of trying to get on sides, but they're at the same time not letting customers withdraw anything. Um, you know, there was there was news that Vault also shut off withdrawals from customers. So kind of these, uh, you know, these CFI lenders and exchanges are all coming under an enormous amount of stress. Can you, with the benefit of having operated, uh, you know, in you know, throughout credit contagions and traditional financial markets, walk us through like how you're viewing the space of crypto right now, like what's actually going on. And I was going to ask you if, if you see crypto as kind of a canary in the coal mine for what could potentially happen to the rest of uh, TradFi, both stocks and bonds. Yeah. So um, on the first part, it is definitely a good old fashioned deleveraging that's mm -hmm. going on in the crypto market. There was too much leverage especially in the CFI world, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the Celsius's, the three R capitals and the like. We didn't really know the BlockFi's. We didn't know what they were doing, how they were doing it. Some of it was, you know, that they were offering big high yields. Some of that also goes all the way back to Terra, that they were getting it from them. Uh, and so when that blew up, all of, all of a sudden now, everybody's looking at who's going to be the next player to go. Mm -hmm. This will end when, to put it in crypto terms, all the owners are diamond hands. Mm -hmm. Everybody's solvent all the way to zero. You might be poor, but you're solvent all the way to zero. All the leverage is going out of the system right now. And it will take more and more time. When you could tell me that Michael Saylor is still solvent at $1,000 Bitcoin, then we're done. But if you're telling me that he's in trouble at 15,000, or if you're gonna tell me that Celsius can't open their door at 12,000, on Bitcoin. If that's the case, then that's where we're going to go. When we bottom on this, it will be all the leverages out of the system. And we've seen this in the past. Quick word about Celsius. We learned this from the Great Depression and all the bank runs. I don't think there's ever been an example of a bank, if you want to think of Celsius as a bank, that's closed its doors to stop a run that's ever successfully reopened. Uh, when they reopen, everybody withdraws their money and they're done. Uh, and so maybe they're going to break the rule. Maybe they'll break the mold. They'll be the first one. But history is not on their side. Everybody that winds up closing winds up staying that way permanently. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I think is going on in the marketplace. Um, what I'm disappointed by is we're not delineating between DeFi and CFI mm -hmm. because I want to say something nice about it. it. Look, a lot of the DeFi protocols are working brilliantly. You know, the, the Maker Vaults and MakerDAO is working brilliantly. Curve is working brilliantly. Uniswap is working brilliantly as well. Compound is working brilliantly. You could see what they're doing on chain. 
People that got offsides are getting liquidated. The, the, the protocols don't hiccup. They just move on. You don't like the prices, sure, but the protocols themselves are just working. And part of that is because there's no ambiguity on it. Everybody could see what's happening with those, unlike a Celsius. Uh, and so therefore, I think that there's a genesis here of another bull market in that we need to see more things get on chain and see things be a little bit more open and get rid of that opacity of whatever BlockFi was doing. And now that they're being swallowed up by FTX, whatever they're doing as well, too. I'll be I'll be very blunt with you, Michael. I'm I'm very down on what FTX has been doing because I don't think the answer to this deleveraging is let's centralize more stuff around the crypto JP Morgan. The whole idea is we're supposed to get rid of these guys, not in not encourage the growth of them. First it was CZ, now it's SBF. We'll see who winds up being next. We need to decentralize this world, not centralize this world even more. And so hopefully that's where we're going to go with it. And a lot of the DeFi protocols, you know, big thumbs up for what Uniswap has been doing and what Maker has been doing and what Curve has been doing during this period. They just work and they continue to work. Yeah, I'm divorcing that from the prices of tokens. Tokens are falling, but those protocols are not hiccuping like a lot of the CeFi protocols. Yeah, I would, um, you know, it, it's hard for me to, I'm kind of torn on the whole SBF thing because on the one hand, it is against the ethos of what we're all trying to build and do in this space. On the other hand, it's very hard to prove the counterfactual if SBF hadn't stepped in, right? Where would the market be? I Where I, where I definitely agree with you on is I think we're going to see the birth of, and honestly, I am against maximalism in the crypto space. Talk about it on this podcast a lot. I don't love it in any one way, shape, or form. But if I was to be a maximalist, it probably would be an on-chain maximalist, right? The whole thing that the whole improvement that we're trying to do here is to put things on chain, improve the governance structure, and make things more transparent. And I think honestly, um, where the whole crypto space is kind of taking its licks now, and we were kind of holier than thou, right? Uh, all these improvements that we're supposedly making to TradFi. And what we're finding out at the end of the day is at least in the current structure and iteration, we're no better than the current system, but we just don't have the Federal Reserve to be the lender of last resort or the buyer of last resort. So I, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, the joke I like to say is if you think that what SBF is doing, it might be necessary. I mean, I'm not saying it's not unnecessary. And yes, you know, it might be worse if if he wasn't there, but let's go the whole nine yards, right? Let's just get rid of OnChain and he could just, everything will be on his server down in the Caribbean and we'll just run everything off of his servers. Right. Is that where we want to go with this space? What's the point right. of this space if we move to that, if we're moving in that kind of direction? Then there'll never be a problem. There'll never be any problems with gas fees. Everything will go as fast as we want it to. Uh, but then, you know, what we've done is we've just remade another version of JP. It's interesting that they call him the JP Morgan. We already have a JP Morgan. We don't need a second JP Morgan. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you as well. I do think the silver lining, I don't know if you've ever heard this. Um, this was a, a teacher in my high school that used to tell this to me. Uh, two steps forward, one step back, right? You make some amount of progress and then you go back. And I think that's a really good way of uh, describing what we do in, in crypto with these cycles, right? I think a lot of what, um, and Tushar Jain actually, it's a really interesting observation about what kicks off uh, bull markets or what is associated with the beginning of new bull markets, which is a new mechanism for token distribution, right? So in 2017, that was ICOs. So instead of actually having proof of work coins that you had to go mine, you could sell the pre-mined coins. That was a really big innovation. In 2020 with DeFi summer, you had yield farming where basically protocols gave away equity in return for liquidity. Uh, NFTs, that was basically a whole new way of like crowdsourcing development of intellectual property and building these online communities. But however, you, it, it, you kind of make these iterations along the way, and then inevitably there's like some sort of mania that's associated, there's a crash, and then we make these moderate improvements kind of as we go forward. And I do, what I hope is that, um, you know, in 2018, the, all the companies that were getting funded were these CFI companies, and they're great companies. I don't wanna say that they're not, right? BlockFi, despite the trouble that they've gone, like I know that management team, I have a super, super high opinion of the team, uh, despite what's happened. And to their credit, they're the ones who kept their doors open. Um, but it was like the block fives of the world that were getting funded back then. What I hope in this next cycle is that we've seen some of the drawbacks of having shadow banks 
you know, JP Morgans and everything in this space. And what I would hope if there are VCs out there who are listening, let's fund the decentralized version of that, right? If it's more complicated from a technical perspective, let's get good teams, let's get good developers, but let's make sure that we're building this infrastructure on chain, right? Because at the end of the day, we have to do something different here, I think. So that's what I would... Yeah, a little a little history. What you're seeing happen is this is hardly new. In fact, I tweeted this out about yeah, three weeks ago. Um, in 1895 to 1900, one third of the companies listed on the London Stock Exchange had the name Bicycle in it. Bicycle was the crypto of the day. Like if that. you took a shitty company that did nothing and stick the name Bicycle on it, its valuation went up 5x. They were issuing hundreds of shell companies, which we call SPACs today, that were supposed to go out and buy bicycles. Because that was, the uh, the economist recently had a story that the bicycle is the most underrated invention in humankind. And I tend to agree with it in terms of what the bicycle has meant. And it just went completely over its skis. And there was a big crash by 1898 to 1900. Before that, we had the telephone mania in New England. There was hundreds of bullshit telephone companies that were made that all went bust. We've had railroad manias. We had tele we had uh, radio manias in the 1920s. We had television manias as well. This is not new, mm -hmm. what's happening. The two steps forward and one step back. All new technology winds up. Good idea. Way overdo it. Blow everybody up. The dust settles, make some more forward progress. The problem is when we blow up everybody, usually, or we have to be careful of it, it takes out you and me too, yeah. in that we're not around for the next upcycle because it can, it's just, yeah, 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 we're gonna get rid of all the leverage guys. Yeah, well, I'm gonna lose 90% of my value too, or 95% of my value. If I'm too in, if I'm too tied to the sector, that's gonna affect my lifestyle as well. So that's the problem with all technology. This is not new, what's happening. What is new is the accessibility of it. You know, back then you had to actually break a sweat to figure out how to buy one of these bogus bicycle companies. And, and now, you know, anybody can do it on their, on their phone in three minutes. Yeah. And that's the only thing that's a little bit new. But the concept of what we're seeing, hardly new at all. Mm. Uh, Jim, I want to get your opinion before we have to go here on stable coins in general. Maybe I could lay out, you made a great argument that I haven't heard, frankly, anyone else make, uh, but I want to get especially your opinion on kind of where these things go and maybe we can make a distinction in between more centralized fiat collateralized stable coins uh, versus decentralized stable coins like algorithmic stable coins. So on the one hand, right, we just saw Terra Luna blow up. These kind of, these uh, stable coins that employ some sort of algorithmic type model, which wherein you collateralize the value of the stable with the network equity, which for listeners, UST was collateralized by Luna, right? We, there's an enormous amount of pushback and the general consensus right now is that that'll never work, right? Um, then you kind of have Maker, uh, which to your point is actually doing very well, right? That's maybe that's collateralized by crypto, uh, crypto uh, collateral uh, on chain, although increasingly that's collateralized with USDC. And then you've got uh, USDC, which again, big fan of Circle. Uh, but you know the drawback there is that you've got fiat collateralized stable coins, which could be frozen kind of by the U.S. government. So on the one hand, we don't like these decentralized algorithmic backs because that was never an economically viable model, and they're going to collapse, and it's going to create systemic risk. On the other hand, you've got these fiat collateralized stable coins, and that actually could be more dangerous from the perspective of regulators because what they do with the, when they issue USDC, they take your dollars and they invest it in short-term securities, corporate debt, US debt. So if we ever got big enough on the fiat collateralized stable coin side, there could be a run on that. These issuers would have to go and sell a bunch of that corporate paper into the market and cause some sort of, you know, it could be systemic risk, right? So that's a little pessimistic, right? It's hard for me to see the, the path forward for either a purely fiat model or a purely decentralized model. So what's your thinking in terms of, you know, where, where do stable coins kind of go from here? Well, uh, uh, first of all, a big picture thing, and I haven't tweeted this out for a few months, but if you look at the amount of stable coins outstanding, and I use the DeFi Pulse Index uh, relative to, say, Bitcoin, its relative performance and with the amount of stable coins outstanding, it's almost a 100% correlation. In other words, if you want to see DeFi get orders of magnitude larger, you're going to need stable coins to get orders of magnitude larger. You need much more stable coins. Now, you're right. The problem with the centralized stable coins, the point I was making there was 
every regulator believes a stable coin, a, a centralized stable coin, Tether, Circle, you name it, they're all runs waiting to happen. Yeah. That they all think this space is bullshit they, because it's a threat to them. Maybe that's why they can't think about it clearly. So they all think that one day we're all going to wake up, hit our head and go, what were we thinking about playing in crypto? I got to get all of my money back to the safety of my regulated Federal Reserve regulated bank account. And so we're all going to run back to it. So what they're worried is if you let a tether or a circle or a PAX or one of of these other centralized coins run into hundreds of billions of dollars or a trillion dollars, someday that trillion dollars is going to want to hightail it back into the CFI world. Those stable coins to meet those redemptions are going to have to dump hundreds of billions of dollars of treasury bills, commercial paper, uh, and other short-term securities and create havoc in in the traditional markets. So they're going to put a lid on those markets and they're never going to let those markets get that big. And they've even gone as far to say that Tether had a $10 billion outflow in the wake of uh, Terra um, uh, UST collapsing. And so see, therefore, when people get it, they're all going to want to hightail it back to their JP Morgan account. And we can't have them dumping tra- uh, commercial paper left and right on an already skittish market. They're not going to allow Circle to get to hundreds of billions of dollars. No. And to that end, ah, they'll let it get to its 50-ish billion now. They'll let it get to 75 or 100 or something, but they're not going to let it go much beyond that. So the future of a stable coin is going to have to be in a decentralized coin. You're right. The algorithmic stable coins don't work. Not only don't they work in the crypto space, they don't work in the TradFi space. And I'll give you the example that I've been using. If you look at what the Bank of Japan has been doing, it's a redux of Terra and Luna all over again. They've got their 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 10-year treasury, JGB, Japanese government bond, that's pegged in yield curve control is what they call it, but they're pegging the price at zero plus or minus 25 basis points. Well, it's been trading at 25 basis points. What does that mean that they peg it? They're going to create, this is my little printing press, they're going to print up an unlimited amount of money to buy it or to sell it to hold the price of it steady at 25 basis points forever. Well, that's their stable coin. Their governance token, if you will, is the Japanese yen. As you leave your interest rate fixed at 25 basis points, when all of the other world interest rates are going up, you make your currency less attractive. So people sell your currency. So the Japanese yen has been constantly losing value and hurting their economy. They can't peg the price of the yen and the price of the 10-year JGB, just like you couldn't peg the price of Terra and you couldn't peg the price of UST. My point is, this shit isn't new. We've been doing this stuff in TradFi for generations, and it's been blowing up left and right for generations in TradFi. Trying to fix the price of something algorithmically doesn't work. To try and fix the price with proper collateral like Maker does with the Dyke stablecoin, that does work. Frax has had some um, success. They're fractional. You know, the amount of algorithmic that they use varies over time, but it's very small. Most of it is backed. Um, and that seems to have been working throughout this crisis. But the problem there is to use like a maker. Um, if you've got two trillion on chain and you we don't we have less than that now, but assuming you did, and then you wind up having to have like a collateral ratio of 150% or, or something like that. That's only $750 billion most you could create, if assuming that every dollar on chain is used as collateral for making more die. So you're very limited in the amount of stable coins that you want to wind up using. What do I think ultimately the answer is going to be? And this is my take on the next. If I was to give you a guess on the next bull market in crypto and It'll probably be something different, but I'll give you my guess anyway, is that you will have some kind of a reserve asset. Maybe it's Bitcoin or maybe it's Ethereum or maybe it's something else. And that people will then start to view 
that reserve asset as money good and a stable coin tied to that. So I'm not I'm trying to peg the value to crypto. And I think the next bull market is going to be in use cases. I can use my crypto to do what? What can I buy with it? Oh, don't tell me that, you know, that there's uh, some some protocol here that I could buy one cup of coffee with or I could buy an airline ticket over there. I want to fund my life with it. Mm-hmm. And at once and I don't want to fund my life in 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 traditional currencies. I want to pay my rent in ETH or pay my rent in a stable coin tied to ETH. Yeah. That I think is going to be the next use case for this as we go forward. That was what was lacking in this last bull market. But we're building the protocols. We're building the infrastructure to get to that point. And now that we're ringing out the leverage, I think that that will be the next point where we go with this, is that there will be actual use cases. That's my guess for the next bull market. Probably not going to start in 2022. And hopefully we'll start to see it start to move forward from here. But the next thing you want to see is not only do we have more stable coins, but actual use cases. I can I could go in and get a quote in the stable coin to buy something, yeah. not a quote in dollars to convert the stable coin to dollars. Yeah. If I could add, I completely agree with everything that you're saying there, Jim. And if I could actually add actually one prediction as well, I think one thing that we've uh, seen lacking in the space overall is access to quality debt products, credit products. Um, and if you think about what tends to kick off big booms, right? I mean, right now, you've each token distribution mechanism, that's kind of a form of equity financing, right? I have equity in the protocol token, in many cases, Um, I'm going to find a way to distribute that to my customers, right? And that kind of kicks off some sort of mania. If you look at how it more traditionally works in TradFi, you finance things with debt, right? Like the I don't really want to use this example, but like if you think about uh, you know securitization, like mortgage securitization, right? That's an example of taking an asset, putting you know putting that in a new wrapper and financing it in a different way, and that kicked off an enormous uh, bull market in houses. It ended in tears, but um, I, I do think you know my most optimistic prediction and what I would love to see in crypto is as companies mature, right? So that they become candidates for debt financing in addition to equity financing. You have on-chain infrastructure that gets built out. What would be great is on-chain debt products to help finance some of these more mature companies. I think that is the next natural evolution. I don't know if we'll be there, frankly, at the next for the next cycle, or if it takes two cycles or whatever. But I think that would be a really positive, um, a really positive development for the space overall. Um, uh, I, I agree. I agree with you. And even equity financing too. The the one benefit to, um, you know, on, on tokens, being able to, to spin up your own token and issue your own token and or an NFT is I could take something like, you know, go back to my Bianco Research um, uh, Twitter account. I could tokenize that and I could, you know, have, you know, create value out of that account by using some kind of a token. I don't have to go through a shelf registration and filing for an equity and listing it on the New York Stock Exchange. Right. Uh, it's not big enough to do that. It would never meet their listing requirements. But in the world of tokenomics, we could see that. We've seen that with Chili's and a lot of the sports tokens. They've made some real inroads on that. Um, you know, buy these tokens, get some say in the ownership of the company, get discount on merch or maybe on, um, you know, some money off um, on, on buying tickets. And, and so, you know, you know, tying the real world in with the crypto world. I think we need to see more of that as we move forward. That's on the equity side. You're absolutely right. That would also lend itself onto the uh, debt side as well, that we need to have those types of things. The only problem we're going to have with the debt side is trying to figure out how to do unsecured how to do unsecured lending on chain can only be secured at least at this point right now i know there's some attempts to try and make it unsecured and there's having some varying successes credix is one on the solana blockchain Maple. that seems to have Maple some and success Goldfish as well pretty interesting right it, you know but ultimately it, you know, what is what is it that you do when you take out a mortgage, right? It, it isn't pure collateralized on the house, although that's part of it. It's also your ability to pay because they don't just treat your house like, like a maker vault, right? Well, you know, Redfin said your house price fell by this much this month. So if you don't come up with more equity, we're going to default on your loan. But I've been paying every month. Yes, but the value of your house is below the mortgage price. We don't work that way. So we also, you know, try to you know, make an assessment about your future, unsecured lending. That's hard to do on chain. 
secured lending is great to do on-chain. I agree. I think uh, maybe there are different hybrid steps because to do fully on-chain unsecured lending, you need some sort of on-chain credit score, right? Like uh, basically an improved version of a FICO rating or some sort of on-chain uh, ratings agency or something like that. But uh, again, and the reason I'm saying Maple is because I just did a recording with their co-founder, Sid uh, Powell, last week, I believe. Um, and they kind of have this... Uh, you know, what I would describe as a hybrid AWS type model where actually, I mean, there's off-chain kind of um, vetting, right, for the credit worthiness, but a lot of the infrastructure that enables that lending is an on-chain, uh, it's on-chain, so it's very transparent, it's much more efficient, uh, right? So it's kind of like an AWS type infrastructure that connects borrowers and lenders. Unfortunately, I, I've, uh, that's all the time that we have here, Jim. This has been uh, really great and given us a lot to think about. I got to plug your research here. Uh, it's really, really great. I highly encourage, I'm sure folks uh, who are listening will be familiar with Jim and his work, but Jim, just in case uh, anyone isn't somehow, what's the best way for, for folks to interact with you, follow you, subscribe to your uh, platform? Um, yeah, tell, tell, tell listeners how to find you. Uh, easiest way is Twitter, at Bianco Research. Make sure it's the one with lots of followers because there's all kind of scams that, uh, um, you know, try to uh, feel off my name like everybody else. If you see... A version of me with 50 followers, you've got the wrong one. Um, or 200 followers, you got the wrong one. Um, LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn at Jim Bianco, and our website is biancoresearch.com. It is an institutional product that we publish uh, at least daily for our institutional clients. But if you want to take a look at that, you can uh, um, you request a free trial that way as well, too. Awesome. Jim, thank you so much. Uh, as always, generous with your time. Love the win button. Uh, we'll have to get you back on the show uh, soon. Thank you.